Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, and welcome to this episode of MedHeads. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and today we have with us on the show Marie Eisma, a mental health social worker. Hello, Marie. How are you? Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So, Marie, I thought today we'd talk about the difference between group therapy and individual therapy as, as it is applied in alcohol and drug treatment. What is group therapy? What's individual therapy? What's group therapy, first of all? Oh, so group therapy is essentially where people come together, usually with a, a common cause. There's something that might bring people together. So it could be, um, I mean, I've certainly seen group therapy from everything from um, obviously like things like your 12-step programs um, to behaviour change to um, support groups for people who might not be using drugs but might have family members who are affected um, people who've experienced trauma. I've seen guys groups do amazing for sexual assault, um, for victims and survivors, um, same with girls groups. Um, but essentially what happens is people come together. Usually there's anywhere from six to sometimes 12 participants. Anything beyond that can get a little bit bit hard to kind of, um, you know, from a, I guess from a um, person who's watching over and kind of convening a group, it, it can be hard to just keep an eye on what everyone's up to. Um, mm. So essentially, some of them can be time-limited groups. Sometimes they can be um, closed groups. So people get together and they start at a certain time and they follow through for a number of weeks. Um, other times, groups are open. So people can just come and go as they as they so please. It must be very frightening uh, for someone who's thinking about their recovery to think, All right, okay, I've got to go into a room not know anyone and then mm. sit down and then I think I've got to tell my story when I don't even know what my story is. What do you say to that? Look, I think um, my understand, like, you know, certainly with groups um, and the feedback certainly been uh, given to me from clients is that, uh, you know, if someone's sort of overseeing a group well, then they will give permission to participants to share as much or as little as they so choose. Um, I think, you know, anyone who does any sort of good group facilitation would understand that, you know, starting off into a new group is going to often feel um, quite unsettling. Um, you know, people have got no idea. And you're right, people don't know what their story is. Um, mm. I've heard lots of mixed stories uh, about um, group work. You know, I've heard some people in their, in their journey of um, changing their relationship to substances where, you know, some of the 12-step the programs have been absolutely brilliant for them. Um, then I've seen other people have come to the other side where they're like they can't keep uh, being immersed in people's, um, the sadness. Some people have, you know, it's got to a point for them where they, they can't sit there and be exposed continually to... Um, perhaps some of the, the adversity of substance abuse, for them they've had to then go off and do some of their own individual work because it's just too, it's, it's, not, in, uh, it, it's not relatable to them anymore in, in where their world is. They've moved beyond it. Um, so it's so not everyone's inevitable. Got, I think, yeah. 
it's not inevitable that everyone will benefit from group work all the time. It, it, it's something one has to decide oh, absolutely. the right time for. Totally. And some people, mm. you know, group work is just not, not a good fit. Um, you know, if people who are majorly psychotic shouldn't be cruising around in mm. a group. Um, yeah. You know, there's certain personality styles. Um, you know, if some people have got like considerable um, you know, antisocial personality traits, um, if someone's incredibly narcissistic, um, you know, even with people who have got, you know, incredible um, social anxiety, you know, sometimes mm. a group is just not the right fit for such people. Yeah, yeah. So it's not as if group work is for everyone. I, absolutely not. No, mm. no. Um you know, I mean, some people, yeah, it's just not, it's not a good fit. And yeah, yeah. Uh, if they're willing to perhaps maybe do some of their own individual work, um, group work might be a nice thing to be added on, but it certainly wouldn't be, um, you know, your first line of um, launching and first sort of help in, in my personal opinion anyway, especially yeah. for those categories that I just mentioned then. And you've got to be finishing a withdrawal program. You can't go through withdrawal at the same time as engaging productively in group work. So there's also a timing issue as well. Isn't there? So yeah, and I think yeah. Sorry, go on. No, no, no. I was just going to say that you know um, sometimes, like for some of the you know, like your twelve-step programs, people may not necessarily be completely. You know, they still might be using, or they still might be you know using a few times a week. Um, whereas mm -hmm. your more structured, probably group work, where it's like relapse prevention. Um, you know, maybe a requirement of that is that somebody's not using and their mm. their common bringing together is around skills of, you know, not falling back or, you know, not relapsing or, um, mm. you know, it might even be like a CBT group. It could be something around mm. understanding cognitions and the impact of cognitions that they have on our behaviours and stuff. So you're throwing to me a lot of words that are very triggering for me. So you mentioned 12 steps, you've mentioned CBT, you mentioned families. I mean, what I'm trying to think of is an overarching classification of the groups that can occur. So I suppose in my mind, I have a list of groups can occur in the following schema. So one would be psychoeducation, two would be relapse prevention, three would be CBT, four would be family therapy, and then the fifth one in my classification would be, um, uh, you know, peer support groups, including 12-step programs and also smart recovery. So these mm. are terms that a lot of people may not have, have, have heard of. Could you tell me a little bit about your, what your understanding is of each of those? Yeah, so, um, you know, a lot of the 12-step programs, um, they, you know, you can have one that's specific for a person who's actually using substances and you can mm. also have another one um, for the families who are affected because, you know, what we what we know about substance abuse is that um, the, the substance actually becomes like the, you know, the, the prime actor on the stage mm. and everyone's behaviour is uh, tweaked around. So for the person who's using substance, their goal is, you know, they will, tend to prioritise access, access to that substance or substances over anything else. Um, mm -hmm. That's just their focus. Um, but then, of course, when we've got people who um, are family members connected with that, their, their focus then becomes on managing the substance. So there's often a, an aspect of control around that. But I guess when we really mm -hmm. peel everything back, the cornerstone is the substance um, and how that's impacting. So, you know, um, that's usually 
one of the uh, focal points. Mm -hmm. So when they've got the 12-step program, you've also got one that parallels, which is for family members who may not be using. Um, right. So, yeah, you've got your, your peer support stuff. You've got some that, you know, some people don't like the 12-step concepts. They don't like the idea of, why, why you know, surrender. Some people, um, because the format, as I said, sometimes people, um, look, I, th I think the other thing that comes up with group work is the confidentiality is, you know, even though it's spoken about as part of a, a connection of people coming together, um, there is a huge amount of trust in knowing that you're sharing your story to potentially 12. And I mean, sometimes those 12-step um, groups have much more than just 12 people. They could have like a... Mm you know, quite a few people. Um, mm. So for some people that that's not, they don't feel safe. They don't feel that their information is going to be protected or honoured. Um, mm. So that can be another thing that can be a, a, um, a pivoting point for some people. But yeah, you've got your CBT group. So you've got, um, they might be a, a more structured group where it could be a specific six to 10 weeks. It could be looking at um, the different, you know, core beliefs that trip people over that could then lead to somebody using, um, you know, uh, some of the things that kind of the, the cognitions that keep people stuck in repeated patterns um, and, and things like that. So, and yeah, and when it comes to the family stuff as well, as I said, that's, you know, some of them can be specifically 12-step focused. Sometimes they can be just more of a peer support model. Um, other group supports could be things like um, anxiety recovery or um, for people coming together with anxiety conditions. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's certainly scope for uh, lots of different ones out there. So what is the difference between a 12-step program and smart recovery? Mm -hmm. So they're both programs that are effectively peer-based, aren't they? But there is a key mm. difference. How would you describe that key difference? I my my understanding is the the twelve step um, the twelve step model is very much based on a disease model that people have a disease, mm -hmm. and that um, for a lot of them you know there is that surrendering to something bigger than themselves. There is so more the of a power um, concept. the higher power concept. Now some people yes. that derives a lot of um, you know for some people there, there's a certain yeah, it, it takes me back to the work of um, a psychiatrist, um, Dr. Michael Carr Gregg, who wrote about um, one of the big, biggest things that a lot of adolescents are, why a lot of people, adolescents are struggling with mental health is that we have, they're actually what he refers to as spiritually anorexic. Mm. Um, and I know that um, even when I was doing some work on um, back in my years, years and years ago, a study, Durkheim's typology of, um, of suicide. And we were talking about the importance of having a connection to something bigger than us um, mm. and how that is important. But for some people, that concept of a 12-step program, that, that concept of a higher power is like um, it's something that, that, that they just can't get their head around. They're not interested in it. Or they make the link and think it's uh, it's becoming a very uh, like a, a religious based thing, and mm. some people run a mile from that. Has that been your experience? Yeah, it's for this concept of the higher power either is very enabling or is very disenfranchising, and it's entirely an individual thing. You know, for some people it works, for others it just doesn't work. Um, mm. So. It, it, it is what it is. And, you know, I, for those people for whom the concept of the higher power is disenfranchising, I always say, well, look, there's always smart recovery. 
What would you say about exactly. that? <clears throat> oh, look, I what, think it's a, it's a beautiful option. I think mm. it's a really, really nice option for people to have that, that, you know. And look, sometimes, you know, it's like you walk into a shoe shop. You don't just plonk your feet in the first shoe and run mm. and, and pay for it. You know, sometimes it's about, you know, the fit. Sometimes it's about what does it feel like. And sometimes it's about giving people permission to, to try something different. If this doesn't mm. work, perhaps try this. Yeah. yeah. You know, so and there's it's also a real, the constant. Yeah. There's also the issue of do you have to be abstinent of of pharmacotherapy to actually engage in some of these groups? Because I think in the past, certainly with the 12-step programs, it was felt that you weren't properly part of the group or you weren't properly engaged in your recovery if you were still on pharmacotherapy. But I don't think that's such exactly. an issue anymore. Mm. No, no, I, I, and I had the same thing. I had a client having a, a terrible dilemma because they were taking an antidepressant and they're like, mm. well, I'm not really completely free. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, it's, again, it's like you're weighing up the pros and cons. I mean, if he wasn't on his antidepressant, he wouldn't have been able to get out of bed to even get to the, get to the group yeah. to begin with. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's very much horses for courses. Yeah. So one has to be mindful when one is seeking a group, a peer support group to, to engage in that, you know, are you going to benefit from the concept of the higher power and is your group going to facilitate your continued use of pharmacotherapeutic interventions as recommended by your treating physicians? Absolutely, absolutely. Tell me about, tell me about your, your views on psychoeducation and the value of psychoeducation within group work. I mean, what's the point? What's the point of telling people oh, about... Psycho you know, Look, I, I personally, and I do this with my individual work, but psychoeducation is, to me, it's foundational. I, I don't, I, if you cannot, if people cannot have a, an understanding of perhaps what's going on um, brain-wise, um, physiology-wise, um, socially, like when you break down the different sort of pillars and then you um, help educate clients on that, you can see the, I don't know, for me, it, there's a, there's a, a relief, there's a, oh, my gosh, that's what's happening. Um, and when people can make sense of what's actually going on from the education that's happening, I think people can then just build on from that. But I think without a very good basis, meaning the, the actual understanding from a psychoeducation perspective, for one, I think it also introduces language. I think it, induces, it in, um, invites a, a common language that we then just use with a shared meaning and it builds on from there. Um, mm. So without psychoeducation, I mean, I think that's, Usually, I mean, whenever I'm doing any work with clients, the, the psychoeducation is usually first and second session stuff anyway, just so people mm. have an understanding of what's happening without mm. it. It's like you don't have a map. There's no, there's no GPS. Mm. So really what you're saying is that it provides people with the tools and the vocabulary to consider and engage in their recovery. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And then we have, we've talked a bit about CBT, um, you know, there, there, there's, I suppose there's, there are two main talking therapies which I consider to be very appropriate for AOD. One of them is CBT, the other one is mindfulness. What, mm. what is CBT? How would you describe CBT? So CBT is essentially looking at the cognitions that we have. So, you know, sometimes... Um, 
you know, a person may have a very, very strong belief. And a lot of this links in with sort of schema therapy, which essentially means that, you know, we've got these schemas that we've formed when we were younger um, and they almost become a lens in which we see our world through. Um, and essentially people will interpret their world through these glasses that could be quite limiting. Mm. <laughs> um, so a lot of the, the cognitive stuff, you know, we can have things like, you know, your black and white thinking, um, so people either believe that they're this or they're that, but there's no shades of grey. They were either fantastic when they did that presentation or they were totally terrible. Um, or, you know, the generalisation. So believing that, you know, um, you know, uh, people get caught up into very, you know, generalised thinking, um, like all or nothing thinking, uh, as in far can, as Can you generalization. give me some examples of this? Yeah, so generalised thinking, all or nothing thinking. What, what oh, so would be examples think, of that? Yeah. Okay, so generalise is coming from the word generalising. So sort of assuming that just because, you know, one person thinks a certain way that the whole population is going to think like that, um, which mm. which may not be the case. We know that there's so many variances in how people make sense of their world. So the black and white thinking um, or the all or nothing thinking is um, essentially where, you know, it, it's absolute. There's no capacity for you know, an alternative perspective. So, you know, and this is where we can get caught up in a lot of biases and a lot of, um, you know, we might make assumptions about certain races or we might make certain assumptions about, um, you know, someone goes to a gym and, and they don't, um, you know, they don't do 20 pull-ups pull or chin-ups. All of a sudden I didn't do 20, therefore I'm crap. <laughs> I'm not good. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, those sorts of, you know, um, extremes is probably, and they can be very, um, they can be very, and, and a classic in, in substance abuse is, well, if I've had one beer, well, I've broken my, my um, I've broken my quota and what I said I was going to yeah. take. So therefore I might as well drink the six pack. Yeah. So you can see how people trip themselves over by these um, beliefs, you know, um, and like there an example be, I give to my clients is, there, what were there you going to say? A, there used to be a saying in Ireland, you may as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yet, you know, like... You may as well have one, you may as well have a six-pack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a lot of clients will do that. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm useless. And then they'll buy into the story and then they'll they'll go off. But, you know, like an example sometimes we use, and I don't know, you probably you've used it or are aware of it, is that thing that, you know, if we have a flat tyre, we don't then go off and slash our other three tyres. <laughs> Why would we do yeah. that? Um, yeah, but yeah. you know, when we're really caught up in that in that cycle of the believing, um, people it, it becomes so uh, becomes so sneaky in how it happens, um, and a lot of people honestly don't believe. Like, and and the poisoned parrot that's a beautiful concept where, you know, the poisoned parrot is the one that just jabbers away in on the on the shoulder of someone, you know, telling them that they're useless, telling them they can't do anything mm. right, um, or why don't you just go and use? Why don't you just go and get drunk? Or whatever other story might yeah. be going on. So yeah. That's, that's sort of more around your CBT. So it's sort of looking at how your thoughts impact, like a situation happens, um, you know, your thinking is involved in that, and then there is a resultant behaviour. Um, mm. Yes. Yeah, so whereas your mindfulness and, and sort of um, acceptance and commitment therapy, which are the two that I tend to also use, is more around, uh, in my the way I explain it to clients, is cognitive behavioural work tends to look at the cognitions. So we might be going in like a, a scientist or a social scientist would by going, okay, so if we're just curious about what's happening and we're, you know, if the belief is this, where would we look for the where would we look for proof that perhaps that's not the case? 
So one of the things when I trained in mindfulness was that it looked at, I, I sometimes CBT as a bit of a tennis match between, you know, this is a cognition. If I look at it this way, it's a bit different. And then before you know it, it's kind of like this ball's bouncing between the courts. Um, mm. And we know that we have, like, I think I did some studies on it the other day. Uh, I was doing some EMDR on pain, um, some um, training and some research on a psychologist who was saying that, you know, we have up to like 70,000 thoughts per day. Now, you know, for someone who's really doing a lot of tennis matching in their head, that's exhausting. Thoughts going backwards and forwards, looking for proof. Where's the where's the evidence to suggest that that's not the case? Whereas I kind of love mindfulness and acceptance and commitment therapy because you don't get into the battle. You just simply, oh, it's a thought. But the more that we buy into it or invest in it and start dancing and dialoguing with it, um, we can just simply let it be and then we don't feed it. And then the mind goes, oh, well, I'll pick another one of the 70,000 thoughts I'll ingest in yes. or digest in now yes. or interact with. And yeah. um, it's, it's very so the way gentle I, and I... The way I explain the difference between CBT and mindfulness on a very simplistic level is that CBT challenges one's thinking. Correct. Whereas mindfulness accepts one's thinking and moves on. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That, for me, that's and a very you, you easy... It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so I think that actually is really, yeah, that's a beautiful, that's be a beautiful description. Most appropriate form of therapy for any individual within uh, drug and drug and alcohol services. How would you, how do you tell which patient's going to do well with CBT versus which patient's going to do well with mindfulness? Look, I've some of the my experience is some of those who are a very logical mathematical type there's different personnel sorry there's different um different types of intelligences and i sometimes when i'm working with clients i'm looking for you know are they very logical in in how they make sense of their world are they um you know are they highly interpersonal are they highly um reflective you know where where's their insight where's their capacity to kind of go inwards and, and what can they tolerate um mm. you know sometimes when i'm looking at mindfulness sometimes you know even just connecting with the breath um you know if for people who've got problems with um panic or certain um you know who are very in tune with their breathing sometimes mindfulness even connecting with the breath i might not use that um mm. as an approach i might get them just to do more of a body scan rather than tune into their breathing because the moment they focus on their breathing if it starts becoming irregular you know mm. it can bring on it on on certain unpleasant sensations for them um so sometimes and some of the complaints i've had about cbt is that it's reductionist that it's it's kind of robotical. what does that mean um, what does reductionist, reductionist mean? in essentially that you know everything that we're experiencing comes back down to a thought that you know it's like a computer and that's what I mean people talk about it sort of being you know well if I'm adding seven plus seven in a a calculator it's going to be 14 like it's so predictable it's so Mm -hmm. and then some of the other complaints I've had is that people have spent so much time um, doing CBT that they they've become so highly analytical in their world that there's been a certain there's been a loss that's come as a consequence of that. Like they, yeah, it's it's hard to describe, but they've just found that mm. they've become so caught up in analysing everything um, that they've gone very much into left brain mode and yes. um, that that's become like a dominant feature for them. So moving on to the, the idea of left brain mode versus right brain mode, I think one of the things that I want to emphasize about mindfulness is that mm. it's it's 
there's no challenging. The role of the therapist in mindfulness is not to challenge. It's to accept current thinking and then try and create what I call the cognitive dissonance. I think um, mindfulness, when uh, I trained a lot in acceptance and commitment therapy also for people who experience borderline personality. Um, and some of the beautiful features of, of acceptance and commitment therapies you know, again, taking things back to a value base. So like, you know, when we look at the thoughts and we just, we don't attach to them, we simply notice that they're there. So for someone who might be, you know, if the thought is, I really want to score, I really want to use, Mm. can you just accept that the thought's there instead of getting into battle with it? So some of the examples Mm. that we use with mindfulness might be, you know, if you look out to the clouds in the sky, what do they do? They move. They never stay still. And I like to look at the the human brain as almost like a bit of a movie screen that, you know, things will just keep showing up. Um, mm. Do we have to do we have to get into relationship with them? Do we have to have a commentary about them every three seconds? Mm. You know, mind, one of the beautiful things about mindfulness is that essentially the thoughts that pop up in our head are often impersonal, but we make them personal. So I, I use the example like, you know, if people get the hiccups, I'll say to clients, you know, do you get caught up in the story about the hiccups in your body? And they'll go, no. And I'll go, you just want someone to give you a fright or have a glass of water and get rid of them. And they'll go, yeah. yeah. But mm. we invest in the story of our thinking. You know, we we buy, instead of just simply understanding that it's kind of neurological impulses going pop, 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 doing that, we sit there like a cat waiting to prey on something like it's going to you know, this kind of thought is going to somehow give us some huge revelation rather than just going, it's simply, it's simply brain activity. Does, mm. can, does that make sense, Fergal? Like, can you understand what I'm saying? Or yeah. does it seem so, a bit weird? So maybe, maybe what we're, I, I mean, I, I, when I use the word mindfulness, you use the word acceptance and commitment therapy. I mean, are they actually two different processes? They're, they're, they dance very similarly. I think um, acceptance mm. and commitment therapy has kind of been born out of mindfulness. Um, mm. But essentially, like, you know, and, and here's an example, like if someone's got a major craving to use or something like that, if we apply the same concept to a leaf, you know, placing that thought of a, um, being a leaf on a stream and putting that thought there, mm. so I'm, I'm using a bit of the work mm. from Russ Harris, you know, and letting that, mm. that, um, that leaf go, we've changed our relationship to that thought. We've changed our relationship mm. to it there and then. Um, so yeah. another beautiful example that clients love is like a train pulling up at a train station. You know, we've got a lot of baggage. We've got a lot of stuff in our head. We, the automatic doors open. We can, put the, we can put the thought on the train mm. and we can let it go express yeah. to the city. You know, we've, yeah. we've made a disconnection from it. We're not, again, mulling around in it or um, immersing ourselves or percolating in the thought. We're letting it go and we're moving it through. Just like, yeah. and so another one of those 69,100 and something thought might pop in then. Yeah. You can't have two we thoughts at the it, same time. Absolutely not. And the yeah. thing is, you can replace you know, a bad you, thought with a good thought. Yeah, absolutely. And the more that you do it, the more that we disconnect it. You know, even mm. when we're talking about brain change, that's actually how we change our brain. So if we're yeah. not getting caught up in the story about it, then we're not. And, and the example I use is like clients going through the, the dark tunnel in the city loop. You know, it's, it's mm. repetitive, it's consistent, it's familiar. The tracks aren't going anywhere new. The train's certainly not mm. going anywhere new. 
But if we just move the track ever so slightly to the left or the right, that train then gets some momentum and it's actually no different with what's happening with our brains. So when we're caught up in the cycle of addiction, what were we going to say? That's a great <laughs> that's a great analogy, actually. Just changing the tracks can actually, um, you know, initiate great change. So when we started this uh, conversation thinking about the difference between uh, group therapy and um, one-on-one therapy, we, we, we don't have time to even touch on one-on-one therapy today. So perhaps we oh, could arrange to have another chat for, for next Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we'll try and sure. talk about uh, one-on-one therapy and what can happen there. But to, to summarize then, we, we, we both agree that group therapy is a core part of the interventions for uh, pa- patients with alcohol and other drug use disorders. We've talked about yeah. psychoeducation. We've talked about uh, CBT versus mindfulness. We've talked about peer yeah. support. We've discussed the difference between um, 12-step program and smart recovery. We've talked about uh, family therapy as well. So I look forward to uh, chatting with you next time, and perhaps we can touch on individual therapies then. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that will certainly complement um, understanding the the group, um, the role of group therapy and the role of individual therapy because they do have a they do have a dance. Thanks, Marie. That's it for today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it, and we look forward to you joining us again soon. 